Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to an especially glamorous episode of History Hack. This is Charlotte joining you today and taking you to all the glamour of old Hollywood. I've got quite a special guest with me today who I'm very excited to bring to you. Roger Lewis has written bestsellers on Peter Sellers, Laurence Olivier and Charles Hawtrey as well. He's also written the biography of Anthony Burgess and his seasonal suicide notes became an enormous word of mouth success. His latest offering comes in at a whopping 750 pages and represents 13 years of his life in writing. It's called Erotic Vagrancy everything about Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and it goes without saying that I'm very excited for this conversation and I'm thrilled to welcome Roger onto the podcast today. Hello Roger. Hello to all of you. (laughs) It's such a thrill to have you here and to talk about this book because I'm probably going to be one of the few people who speaks to you about it who has genuinely read it from cover to cover. Um, (laughs) So Erotic vagrancy was the child of a fever dream, I understand, and you open the book with a very clear sense of the limitations of biography as as a form, as an enterprise. So how did you decide to approach the task of telling the Burton Taylor's story? Well, I, as you say, I began this book in, in, actually when I was quite ill and it was all rather feverish, and I thought that their films are rather feverish as well. All those ones they made in the 60s and the 70s, which were very unpopular at the time, critical uh, disasters, financial flops, things like Boom, Hammersmith is Out, uh, Dr. Faust, uh, even Cleopatra uh, was... um, People were uh, were rather sceptical about all these films they were making. And yet I loved them. I loved them. I loved the colour, the brightness, the, the, the frenzy the money, the excess, all that. I loved it. And it suited my mood. And there have been thousands of books about Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. There are biographies of each of them, books about the two of them together, there are picture books, books on the, all the paparazzi photos and everything else. Loads, loads and loads of stuff about them. But I didn't, I didn't think any of them really managed to evoke them. It didn't, None of these books captured the, the Richard Burton and the Elizabeth Taylor that I sort of was falling in love with. So that's why I decided to write something of my own. And uh, what I did in the end was I treat them as imaginary beings, uh, almost like characters in a novel, like <laughs> Vronsky and Anna Karenina or something. And, and then, then it worked for me then. When, when, when I stopped being... Uh, hampered by all the constraints of straightforward biography, you know, chronology, um, archival research, and all these you know, interviews with other people. I just wanted to think really hard about them and imagine them and bring them to life in that way. So that was my certainly. motivation. <laughs> you've you've certainly done that. Um, the 
the the line that I'm thinking of from the opening of the book, and I just think this is so beautiful, is that you describe biography is historical fiction, seldom provable, full of fishiness and titillation, and despite its heaps of minutiae, insufficient. <laughs> I know you get these big books about celebrities or famous people and they're rather inert they don't they the research has been done the research is impeccable but the writing is very flat and you're left wondering well who are these people in fact the other thing biographers do which i always dislike is they want to bring these people down to earth and, and find out horrible things about them they know their nastiness on the set their nastiness as parents or as a husband or as a, as a wife make 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 them ordinary and and petty and i think no they're not they're bigger than us they're different they're not quite like ordinary human beings they're much more famous they're 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 stars they're up in the somewhere in the firmament and uh so i i, I didn't want to be one of those biographers that just finds out grubby little truths about them yeah. I wanted them, yeah. I wanted them to remain glamorous. Yes, but it's yeah. far from a hagiography, and that's what's that's what's very interesting about your approach. So you you maintain their absolute grandeur and mm. and their bigness and their star yes. power, but yeah. they certainly neither of them get you know get a free pass from you for for bad behaviour and for anything like that. No, that's right. You have to have a sort of moral compass in there. Um, but but on the other hand, you can at the certain at this distance, you can rather enjoy their bad behaviour because it doesn't affect me. Um, it's a bit like when I once wrote about Peter Sellers. Uh, I, I think I was more censorious about him as a, as a terrible parent, as a ghastly spouse. But now, at this distance, so what? We've got the films. We've got we've got their achievements. We 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 got all the things they did, which no one else did. And that's what matters in the end. I love that. So talking about what they've what they've left us and what they've left us behind, um, you you describe the importance of film history in understanding film. So, you know, the idea of it's it's not just the the film that you watch, it's understanding the world as it was and the industry as it was mm. at that time. Now, with this yeah. being a history podcast, I yeah. thought it would be a good angle to take. So Let's start by looking at Hollywood in the 1950s. So both Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor are making movies at this time, but they're not yet working together. What was Hollywood like at that time? Um, what were the experiences of Burton and Taylor like before they become, you know, a, the famous well, couple? They, they, they were able to live in this artificial world of the studio system where there were the moguls at the top and the star structure was very fixed and everything was arranged and organized their their, their private lives were photographed and arranged and, and it was sort of wonderfully artificial um all the marriages and everything and the, and the weddings i mean elizabeth taylor's early wedding to Nicky Hilton was a continuation of the studio world. The, the the costume designers made the wedding dress. The the caterers and the set designers sorted out the church and the whole thing. 
um, and the cars and all the guests were all the other stars, like Dispenser Tracy and that film she made, Father of the Bride. It was like a continuation of that. So it was wonderfully artificial and and beautiful, actually, all manufactured for the public. They weren't like real people at all. They were flying on their studio jets. They were staying in these suites in these gorgeous hotels. They never really interacted, intersected with the real world. And it was only when they were making Cleopatra in Rome in the early 60s that the paparazzi photographers would, would chase them around and try and catch them off guard. And that was the first time that had happened, really, that there was this intrusion into their private lives. And that's what was interesting about Taylor and Burton is that they, they, they were the first people, really, to whom that happened. And we have the 60s suddenly, and it's very different different kind of approach that the public now had to 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 stars yes uh, television yes. made things different so uh, they became less special strangely of course they became smaller i mean you're smaller they smaller they became they became more every day um except taylor and burton resist that and remain huge but the the studio system that created things like for example ivanhoe sort of just the costumes, the whole design of it was just as exquisite as a kind of medieval tapestry. And that all suddenly went when the studio's system collapsed. I mean, the the sort of the, the power of the studios by by the 1950s, you know, they've been working. They've been working under the, the sort of constraints of the Hayes Code. But that yeah. in turn had given them this wonderful stick with which to yes. beat their stars and to keep them in line. The yes, morality are. cause. Mm, yeah. I know. The uh, And the poise, really. The fact that you had the, the Hayes Code and all this censorship, it, it, it did make for um, a sort of exquisite artifice, like a sort of sonnet structure you know it's very strict you get the rhymes right the certain number of lines you can within that you can have perfect freedom within that form if you obey the rules and taylor grew up in that world i mean she was a child star she was in national velvet and the lassie movies which actually are really fun to watch today those films they're beautifully made with these sort of bright colors this sort of cinematography is um the sort of world that never really quite existed, and uh, she started out with horses and dogs, and then it became fathers with the film with William Powell and also the Spencer Tracy ones, and and then after that, boys and men. So you, we watch Elizabeth Taylor grow up within that studio world. It's interesting, isn't it, to look back at the at the um, the MGM machine, especially. Yeah. Uh, so, a, a child star like Elizabeth Taylor is she is schooled on the on the set. Yeah, there is a, she there's was. a very low level of of education that that she's given sort of basic level to mm. to make you know, to sort yeah. of deal with that. Um, but they transition her from. Mm. They have to, they've got this um, actress that they have had since she was a child and they have to navigate the tricky moment of saying, okay, this 
this star we have is now no longer a child. She mm. is an adult. She is a woman. And you are allowed to fancy her. And how they navigate that by sending her out on very publicized dates uh, yeah. and, and then stage managing a wedding is mm. It's very creepy, isn't it, in a way? It is. It's all control, isn't it? And the first wedding to Nikki Hilton just sounds monstrous because then she suddenly discovered on the honeymoon the reality of what he was like. And she was only about 19. I think she she was married and divorced and remarried, you know, maybe two or three times, and she was still in her very early 20s. Yes. It's almost like a child now, isn't it? And I thought that um, the way the studios treated her, for example, putting her in those tight white blouses in National Velvet, I thought it was a bit like Lolita. There was some. Now we'd think oh, it was a bit pervy. All this. Uh, anyway, yeah. she was um, this tomboyish actress, but nevertheless, obviously feminine, and had all that that attention and what she was this is a sign of her strength really and her self-knowledge is that she said i am not going to allow anyone uh to, to do to me what they did to judy garland so she was aware of the you could be a casualty of that system which you know the pills and the, and, the, and the drugs and the drink and things to keep you going things to wake you up and make things to make you fall asleep so she she was very aware of what could occur um and she still wasn't going to be a victim was she she wasn't going to be a victim and she, she never was she never was a victim ever not for a moment in her life uh, but she was ill a lot she was always in hospital and she was always falling over and she was always having various ailments which re reminded her uh, that that she was mortal really yeah. she would um take all these uh pills to for, for her back pain and things like that it was very interesting reading um reading your book about because you you really go into uh, at one point a lot of detail about the the kind of medication that that Elizabeth mm. was taking and how in fact the a lot of the medical problems that she had may have been as a direct result of medication that she was taking yeah. in excess for other conditions so yes. you like your various bits of you are going to pack up if you mm. keep hammering these pills over here for that yeah. pain that you've got over I there know. all all these cross effects and i hope i get got all this right i spent ages researching the should we say the pharmacology of it all and the opioids that she was on um which would cause um, digestive problems that she had she was always in and out of hospital she was always in a wheelchair wasn't she oh, and yet and yet very tough nevertheless yeah well, there's a very famous um photograph of her taken sort of later on in her life where yeah. she's had her head shaved because she um, i believe she oh, had a, a brain, brain tumor, tumor. Yeah. and just how beautiful she is and how strong mm. she is and that you know that bone structure she's got completely yeah. stripped back of all artifice yeah mm. she i think she was tough as nails really she was um, she was and um all the husbands discovered that sooner or later <laughs> okay well let's let's talk about let's talk about some of those um some of those husbands um yeah let's talk about the the burton taylors now we've we've 
on History Hack, we have talked about the Burton Taylors before because we we adore them. Um, but we'd love to drill down here on their legendary meeting. I mean, they hooked up on the set of Cleopatra. Yes. How quickly did their affair begin and how did it affect that production? Well, I think they had met once or twice before in Hollywood uh, at the, the side of swimming pools. But the real big meeting was in Rome, making Cleopatra. And this was the second attempt to get that film underway because they were doing it in Pinewood originally with Peter Finch. And she was ill, actually, with pneumonia, I think it was. And so they scrapped everything and started again with a new cast out in Italy. And uh, Burton was in Camelot on Broadway. He was bought out of his contract for that sent to Rome, where he just waited around for months, doing nothing until he was called to the set. And he was drinking a lot, as he always did. And uh, she she rather liked his sort of devilish charm. Um, she was married to Eddie Fisher by this stage, and one of his jobs was to get her to the set on time and all those kind of things. And she resented that. She didn't like being ordered around and pushed about, told what to do. Um, and Burton was sort of slipping her extra drinks when Eddie was saying, oh, no, no, we've got to get back now because she's got an early call tomorrow. And Burton would try and top up her wine glass. And she sort of loved all that the sort of naughtiness of him and the collusion. Burton himself was there with, with his family, but he was always having open affairs with just about everybody, showgirls, dancers, anybody. And Taylor then, Elizabeth Taylor, she she just became his next conquest. I don't I don't think he had a lay siege for very long. And then they were they were together and the press photographers got hold of this and blew it up into this huge story, this huge scandal, because they were married to other people. And they were in Rome and the Vatican was very upset by this public adultery going on there in the holy city and that's where the phrase erotic vagrancy comes from because the uh, in the vatican newspaper there was this article apparently of ghost written for the pope where he said oh these people these, these terrible people in in, in their um, erotic vagrancy sort of you know wandering around uh, misbehaving and and the world press adored it it became huge. It actually made the film uh, a, a world event. Everyone was wanting to know what was going on with Burton and Taylor. And they, the, the scandal then disrupted the filming. The schedule was extended for ages and ages and ages. I mean, this film took years to make. And the, Anthony and Cleopatra in the film became the two of them in reality, having, having this self-destructive affair but they would, they enjoyed that that great collision um, and then so there they were and after that were together always right. well until they got divorced <laughs> and then got divorced again <laughs> and, and and then ended up doing private lives on broadway it's... so they never let each other go they they couldn't they were they were entwined for life but they they actually changed the the script didn't they to to capitalize on yeah on the two of them the affair and so that uh, they could be speaking to each other almost as if it was 
Burton and Taylor speaking to each other. Yes, it was. And it was all sort of yeah, the film ostensibly about ancient Rome. It's actually about Rome in the 60s. It's about them. Uh, and I, it's very long. And they're every so often film historians find another bit in an archive and 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 because it was the original i think the original cut sort of hours and hours and hours long and so it was all trimmed back but over time people are trying to restore it and i hope they really do find all the lost footage and and, and put it all back which you can do now on you know dvds and things it would be it would be wonderful i mean look at look at what they've been able to do with the the mess of Judy Garland's um, Star is Born. They they found yeah. they found a, a whole twenty minutes that had been yeah. that made the back. film make mm. a bit more sense. But I think originally at one point the plan was for it to be two movies: so one about yes. Cleopatra and Caesar, and then a film about Antony and Cleopatra. Until they realised that no one wants to watch mm. um, Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison, as good yes. as he is, they want to yeah. watch Burton and Taylor. They want to see this frisson that is happening Ooh. right in front of your your eyes but the, yeah. the the amount of money that the studio spent on this you, it. you described it I, I love this about um you know to the brazen all is brass the history of the making of cleopatra may have been about illness and moral and physical corruption but it was chiefly about money pornographic amounts of money i mean she's the first yeah. first actor regardless of gender to be paid a million dollars for a movie yeah she got a million and then all the overtime and all the um extra money for the reshoots i mean it just went on and on the the money she was making from it um i think they used lenses in the camera that below that were the copyright of mike todd her one of her previous husbands so she got the money for that um, it, it, oh, it was just fortunes they made on that film. And and it was all luxury. I mean, the sets are fantastic, aren't they? They're sort of golden. Uh, and the, the ships they built for the various battle scenes. Uh, I mean, it, it's just tons of money. And loads of famous actors in it who were in Rome for years on full salary, hardly used. Of course. I mean, some of them were there for ages and they just got one line <laughs> because so much was edited out. Um, and and in, in in the end, the studio almost just threw it away. They were fed up with it. Uh, they didn't think it would ever make any money, make that kind of money back. I, I think it did eventually, you know, decades later. But um, meantime, the all the people, that, the producers and so on, they made this thing called The Longest Day and they didn't want Cleopatra spoiling the release and the launch of that you know there's a d-day landing film in which burton appears actually um so there were all the sort of studio politics involved in fact they they, they sued burton and taylor for, for, for their hijinks scuppering the chances of the film and and, and then burton and taylor countersued um <sighs> saying well no actually we've made we, we created more publicity for the film so it all ends up in litigation. But meantime, they then made the VIPs, which I absolutely love. It's a beautiful film um, about being stuck at an airport um, and the sandpiper and the comedians and all these other things they went on to do. Um, and, and then when Burton did things on his own, for example, 
uh, Knight of the Iguana, and Hamlet on the stage, which recently was on the stage in London, wasn't it, in the motive and the cue. Um, Taylor's not in those, but she was around all the time, loitering on the set or loitering in the wings at the, the theatre. They were completely inseparable, weren't they? I mean, I, I I know that she she appears in Anne of a Thousand Days as a uh, as briefly, an extra. Yes. She just sort an of extra in that yes. in the background. Yes, that 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 film about um, Henry VIII sort of getting rid of one wife in order to be with another. That was a bit like him and Sybil getting rid of Catherine of Aragon in order to be with Anne Boleyn, who's like the Elizabeth Taylor character. I actually wish she played um, Anne Boleyn in that. Um, I, I I know it's Genevieve Bujold, is it? Yeah. yeah. That should have been a Taylor Burton film, I think. It would have been wonderful. I I read somewhere that you know it was a real bone of contention in their relationship. That because, I mean, obviously, yeah, Richard Burton mm. sleeps with his leading ladies. We know that, but um, that she couldn't be cast as Anne Boleyn because the the producer thought she was too old. Yeah, ridiculous uh, that idea. It would have been really powerful the two of them in that because, of course, that's the same story, isn't it, as all the Hilary Mantel novels? Of course. So. Yeah, that sort of Tudor corked world. But I do think of them, you know, in terms of looking at their films and seeing their relationship. Um, aside yeah. from, aside from Cleopatra, another one that that yeah. really always makes me think of them is is their Taming of the Shrew. Oh, the Taming of the Shrew. Well, again, beautifully, colourfully made. Again, in Italy, back they went. Um, they're Franco Zeffirelli directing it, and it, it's uh, they're just like bashing each other up throughout the whole thing. It's a sort of comic version of um, who, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's yeah. about a sort of married couple or a couple who are about to be married in the Shakespeare, um, with this sort of Punch and Judy relationship, which uh, you, you know, to outsiders, you think, well. What's the appeal here? They're just arguing the whole time, pushing each other off the roof and beating each other up and chucking things at each other. But for, for some reason, that that's their way of demonstrating affection. Um, but that that's a wonderful film with, with, with all that sort of rather fruity Nino Rotar music. It's kind of Fellini in a way, isn't it? It's Franco Zeffirelli. <laughs> It's bonkers. Um, it's completely bonkers. I, I find her her particular portrayal of of Cat being very mm. um, she's very angry. So there's mm. just she sort of goes through this whole thing very angry. And mm. Burton's Petruchio is is laughing the whole time. He's just he yeah. just seems to be having the greatest time hamming it up. It's yes. uh, and I, th I I think it's true to say in that film you can tell they've they've had a long lunch. <laughs> it's, 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 everyone just was slightly drunk in that film. There's a sort of vod, a vodka sheen to Richard Burton in that film. Uh, I, I, I think it's a, it's a sort of comic version of of the Edward Albee film, which is one of the great films ever made, as is the one prior to that, um, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, where I think Burton gives... A great performance. I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? Complete scandal that he never won an Oscar. He was nominated endless times, but he never won. 
it's it's heartbreaking isn't it i mean this is yeah. this sort of leads me on to to sort of the next place i want to go in our chat is that yeah. how did marrying elizabeth taylor affect richard burton because you know he's famous before they marry he's a respected Mm. actor he's a leading man um but he's not in her league as a star in terms of fame yes Mm. in terms of being being a star he wasn't be very successful and making all these films throughout the 50s and even earlier um and giving all these wonderful noble performances but she comes along and then they're they're together after that aren't they and they're they're um it's their marriage, their relationship, which is which is now on display in all these films, um, and he becomes uh, as great as movie stars as, as she was. I, I think she, uh, her presence elevated him in that respect in Hollywood and in in, in the world. I mean, if he'd stayed married to Sybil, I don't think any of this would have happened. Um, you wouldn't have had all this drama and all this melodrama. But he does do these things on his own. For example, this spy who came in from the cold, and it, it's a great performance. There's nothing in that that requires Elizabeth Taylor to make that wonderful. In fact, he's with Claire Bloom, who was one of his earlier paramours. Um, she wanted that. Again, why, why couldn't she play that, the role of the the girl spy in there. Um, again, they thought she was actually too famous, too big for that role, which required a sort of mousiness. But I'm sure she could she could have done it. Um, but he's just wonderful in that as, as this CD spy. It, it, it's a sort of anti-James Bond, isn't it? It's completely unglamorous. It's all in the rain. It's all crumbling. It's all that, all that John le Carre, Tinker Taylor world, isn't it? Oh, he's marvellous in that. That should have won an Oscar. Oh, really, this, really. This is where we, you know, where we we come with the sort of disparity between the two of them. So you know, we talk. You describe it very much as a almost being like a Faustian pact, where Richard yeah. has sold a part of himself to be with this woman he loves and for the fame and the money and all of this stuff Mm. that comes with it um but he's never recognized in the same way as elizabeth taylor so you've got the two of them in who's afraid of virginia wolf which is just Mm. one of the hardest watches so painful isn't it today it is still it really it really has not dated in the slightest the 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 raw emotion in it Mm. um the 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 pair of them are just magnificent in that film. It, it's some of the greatest performances ever given by anyone. And she wins the Oscar and, and he doesn't. Is he even nominated um, for his role in Who's Afraid? I'm, I, was he? I don't know. I don't I think know he was things. even nominated. I think it was a proper proper snub, but I'm sure someone someone yes. was right. But he well, us. goes on... To, he's playing in in George in this is the the sort of prime mm-hmm. example of it. Uh, broken men. Yeah, he was very good playing uh, the sort of broken, guilt guilty guilt ridden people. Um, when you think now, he's become very famous. He's become very rich. He's got everything in the material sense anyone would would ever want. 
private jets and, and yachts and villas in Switzerland and houses everywhere around the world. I mean, he has everything. And, and you know, on the screen, he plays broken down, defrocked priests um, or shabby devils. Um, people who who torment it um and that's why in in my book i have this huge section about him and being welsh and wales and that world he was from which he never really managed to leave psychologically yeah. it's always still mm -hmm. there in the, the damp and the cold and the, the wet with all that deprivation and frightened in a way you might revert to that all that insecurity and then dead at 58 that's the other thing he, he, he like peter sellers didn't live that long and yet did so much it's remarkable <laughs> the the hollywood leading men of of that generation and earlier and um yeah. and just how how they looked when they mm. died as being sort of a testament to how hard they lived. I mean, I they looked I, much older, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, he. I mean, Richard were. Burton, um, Humphrey Bogart, Clark Gable, yeah. all of these men. They they smoked, they drank, yeah. and hard to excess. I don't think mm. any of them had who had ever seen a moisturizer in their lives. And just well, no, how they wouldn't have. Yeah, they they just they looked like they were in their seventies, and you sort of imagine that they were they, mm. these really old men, and you realize, yeah. oh. 57, 58, they're no age yeah. when they go. No, I think it was the smoking, the chain smoking was the, the killer mm. for all these people. Um, but paradoxically, it did give them these beautiful voices. Uh, there's some, something about the, the, the sort of tobacco-enriched voice um, that, that we don't have now. Richard Burton's um, voice is is something that should be preserved in amber for everybody. It's a beautiful voice. Um, early on, if you ever find any very very early interviews, it's South Welsh working class. It's very different than what it became after the elocution lessons. I suppose and he absorbed a sort of way of speaking from. Emlyn Williams and John Gilgut, uh, with all this beautiful re received pronunciation, you can hear every word. Um, and, and it was a very beautiful voice. So by the time he's making, for example, the wonderful uh, long film he made about Wagner, I mean his voice is 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 just wonderful there because it it has a sort of weariness as well. Which um, and a sort of melancholy to it, and, and it is beautiful, as you say. Beautiful. Okay, well, look, let's have a let's have a little bit of a, a chat about some of the the circles that the Burton Taylors move in, because they are mm. they are the they are so famous. They are more than famous. They are stars, icons known the world over. They've got money, like they are ridiculously rich. We're talking yachts. Houses, mm. diamonds. I mean, the, the the wealth is is disgusting in so many ways. Well, one one of the ways they could they could be rich is that they never paid any income tax. I mean, 
living in Switzerland or being domiciled in Switzerland. I'm not sure they were there very much. They were there enough for residency permit reasons. So all the money they made, they kept. Um, and Taylor had lawyers and accountants and, and, and business experts working for her full time, teams of people investing her money, making sure it was all um, maximized and squirreled away in, into all these different uh, areas of the world. They had companies in, in the Bahamas and all that kind of thing. I mean, she had all the top people, all the top lawyers doing that on her, on her behalf. And then Bur uh, Burton obviously also had that kind of um, teams of people um, working on his on his behalf, and a lot of his diaries uh, entries are about meetings with these people. Uh, so the, the the business side of things was very important to them. Um, material things were very important to them. So when they got divorced and all that had to be separated and dissolved, he just Burton just gave it all to her. And then when they got divorced for the second time, she she just grabbed what she hadn't grabbed the first time round. So she was very acquisitive. Pictures, you know, all the Andy Warhol pictures. You know, she she's in, isn't she? She became a very famous screen print. Incredible. Oh, <clears throat> yes. Well, I mean, you know, the the idea of her being featured in in these this series of. Andy Warhol screen prints. I mean, the, the one that's that's most famous that, that people will remember is uh, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Um, do you think that he was obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor and, and preserving her image because he was convinced she was going to die? Yes, apparently um, Warhol got fascinated with Elizabeth Taylor when she was very ill, making Cleopatra. And it was all in the papers. Oh, she was near death. She was going to be dead any minute. And uh, he loved that in, 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 in a sort of morbid way. Yes. Uh, yeah. In the same way that, that, as you say, Marilyn obsessed him and the JFK and all his screen prints of electric chairs and car crashes and things, all that, all, all those big collisions of pop art. Um, Elizabeth Taylor um, signified for him and also money and, and as a sort of consumer project uh, she was um, as famous and as instantly recognisable as a, as, a, as a soup can or yeah. a bottle of coke you know she, she was just now a commercial object in the world and that's you know, like a dollar bill. And uh, he got to know her. Andy Warhol got to know her when she was went through a sort of nightclub phase. And he'd see her there all the time. And uh, they made a she, He was actually in a film called The Driver's Seat, which mm -hmm. very few people have seen, um, with Elizabeth Taylor, which, another one made in Rome. Um, and uh, she, Elizabeth Taylor, became, and Burton to some extent, but certainly. Elizabeth Taylor became a part of pop art history, and all the vulgarity of that, the the the, the slickness of it. Gosh, I love I love that 
when she went through her the nightclub phase in the 70s. That, that well, was... she, she put on a lot of weight, didn't she, by then? And um, she sort of didn't really much mind that, but she became a, a, a sort of Chaucerian figure waddling about. She, she was a sort of Miriam, she went through Miriam Margulies phase, <laughs> didn't she? Which when you look back and see how beautiful she was in, well, National Velvet, you know, you think, well, that was a bit of a transformation. Hey, that's that's just life. That's just aging. I've I've often described um, you know, the the stages that that women go through in middle age as being first we go through our Margot from the Good Life, then yeah. eventually transition into Elizabeth Taylor Caftan and Diamonds, which I'm very much looking forward to as a sartorial phase. <laughs> yes, there, there, there's a sort of arc to it all, isn't there? Really, <laughs> and it sort of end up as Joan Hickson as Miss Marple. <laughs> oh, we can we can only full of, full of wisdom. <laughs> I'm hoping to be Dame Barbara Cartland myself, but um, yeah, that, that well, that that's a sort of Dame Edna. <laughs> yes. Actually, it'll be knowing me, Roger. It will be more Dame Edna. Um, but I want to talk to you about uh, some friends of the Burton Taylors in particular. They had they had a relationship, I believe, with the Windsors in exile. So what I want to know, and this is this is very much for Alex, who I know is going to love this. Yeah. How did the Burton Taylors come to hang out with David and Wallace, and did they like them? What was well, they 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 were making films in Paris because they they couldn't be in Britain for more than ninety days for tax reasons. So, <laughs> um, or America for that reason, and and so Taylor was in this film called The Only Game in Town, set in Las Vegas. So, But they filmed it in Paris. They rebuilt casinos there in the studios to make it seem as if it was Nevada. Burton was making a film with Rex Harrison, actually, um, called Staircase, set in the East End of London. They rebuilt what they thought was an East End <laughs> street again in Paris. So they were in Paris a lot, living in hotels, and they, Wallace and David, the Windsors, they were there sort of at a loose end, as they always were, after his abdication. And one of the things they would do, a bit like in, in, in previous centuries, where they would have gone and, and looked round the, the Paris morgue as a way of entertaining themselves, they'd go around the studios and, and watch films being shot, oblivious to the fact they were a nuisance and they were getting underfoot. So anyway, the, they went and came across... Uh, Burton and Taylor in Paris and were invited to have dinner with them and all that kind of thing. So they, then they, they sort of saw quite a lot of each other. And they, they, they apparently Burton and, and, and the Duke of Windsor, they sort of sing Welsh songs and the Welsh national anthem. They sort of had Wales in, in common. He was Prince of Wales once upon a time. Um, and that was the sort of level of, of, of person they were with. Maria Callas was also around. They, they never met ordinary people. It was always like famous people. But there's, there's something rather sort of ghostly and, 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 and morbid and decrepit about Burton and Taylor as this kind of royal couple, weren't they? With this other royal couple who, who'd fallen from grace somehow. And there they were in exile. 
uh, these exiled monarchs. And, and the Burtons are a bit like that, I think, uh, as if they were sort of searching for a kingdom, searching for some Ruritanian realm where they could um, enjoy their, their wealth and their idleness. So they'd go dancing together and parties together. They'd meet people like the Rothschilds, you know. Uh, but Burton said somewhere along the line that, that, oh, my God, it's years since I just went out and walked down the street and, and, and just went into a pub, if I fancied it, went shopping. He couldn't do it. He would be sort of mobbed by everybody. So it was all a bit like the royal family. They, they have to be surrounded by bodyguards. Um, their route has to be planned in advance. Limousines ferry them everywhere. They can't just walk around and, and, and catch a bus. You know, absolutely could not. Um, e e everything about about their lives now was, was, was um, circumscribed by their fame. So a lot of their lives just spent in a hotel suite. Um, just just trapped in in the same way that. The Duke and Duchess of Windsor were trapped. Yeah. <laughs> Had that sort of a slight connection just based on this sort of strange circumstance in which they yeah. find themselves. Yes, I know. They used to, it was a bit like Peter Sellers and Brit, uh, would spend a lot of time with Tony Snowden and Princess Margaret, um, sort of visiting each other in their stately homes. Um, these people are whisked away to, to a realm of being that the rest of us can't even begin to imagine. And once they're in that realm, they can't leave it. No, they were very much, you, you do describe both Burton and Taylor in their own ways, individually and as a unit, yeah. as being very, they are very trapped by all of the, the wealth and all of the fame because yeah. I guess between between not wanting to pay I think was it ninety percent tax or something yes. it was it was huge. I mean mm. not good to avoid tax, but you can you can understand why why they did it. Well it was like a sort of it was confiscated. But yes. that's why that's why I was fascinated in the character of Rachel Roberts, who uh same Welsh background as Burton, more or less. There are differences but Again, South Wales. She was there, married to Rex Harrison. She loved the fame and also hated it. And she would step in and out of these realms I was mentioning. And that destroyed her. Because when she was with Rex, she hated it. She thought it was so sleazy and vulgar, all this money, all this grandeur, all the fur coats and swanning in and out of the Dorchester. But when she walked out on that, she really missed it. And that destroyed her and committed suicide. Um, so once you've tasted that kind of luxury and then you're exiled from it, um, that's destructive. And she was full of guilt when she had it, full of resentment when she didn't, always trying to get Rex back. She was so drunk and mad, he couldn't bear the thought of that. So I've got these bits in my book where I bring in Rachel Roberts as a sort of nightmare version of her. Yes. Right. And another great actress. Uh, she was a great actress, um, underrated at the time and a bit forgotten now. But things like the sporting life, you know. Incredible. Well, listen, I'm going to 
recommend that all of our listeners, if you are even if you're interested in classic Hollywood, if you're interested in this this sort of um, destructive uh, yet beautiful and endlessly romantic though not aspirational in any way relationship um between Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor that you pick up a copy of Erotic Vagrancy and read Roger's thoughts because it's absolutely wonderful but before we go Roger you mentioned you mentioned things being being um overlooked at the time and now all but forgotten now you also write that we're almost told to dislike uh Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor's work from the mid 60s onwards but you describe these films as having a strange beauty um if we want to understand their relationship how it worked and we want to understand them through their art what movies do you recommend that we seek out aside from the obvious Cleopatra which I just think everyone should watch because it's gorgeous and mad yeah well we mentioned who's afraid of Virginia Woolf Everyone must watch that. It, it, in fact, I, I, I think classic movies like this, they ought to be on the national curriculum, you know, yes. and, along with <laughs> a Dickens novel and a Shakespeare play and a couple of poems by Seamus Heaney. People should know their way around great cinema, shouldn't they? Yes. Great, uh, so there's that. Uh, and Taming of the Shrew uh, is another mad one they make called Boom which yep. um, they filmed on in Sardinia. I love that. Um, I, I, I think if if people can rediscover their movies, then it, 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 it's it's a world that, that that's vanished. And uh, but we can bring it back. We can bring it back. We can we can enjoy it. And I say somewhere in the book, I think, wouldn't it? Because they were obviously a reprehensible couple in so many ways. But wouldn't it wouldn't it be lovely just to be Elizabeth Taylor for a day? Like, wouldn't it be lovely to be Richard Burton, you know, for an afternoon? Yes. Uh, just to just try it out a bit. I, I, I'd love that. Okay. Not forever, just a little bit. I, I don't think my liver could cope with being Richard Burton for more than well, a that's why. Journey. That's why it's only an afternoon allowed, <laughs> because otherwise you'll get cirrhosis. No, we certainly I mean, his, his, his idea of not drinking was just one bottle of you know, brandy a day. Yeah. That was him cutting yeah. down, and well, it killed him, didn't it? So it, it sort of wasn't funny in the end. It did in the end, and you know that's that comes comes full circle to the idea of it. You know, this being Faustian, you know, you can have everything, yeah. everything that you want. You can, you have and then it's taken away from you. Money, fortune, yeah. fame, your name in lights, yeah. uh, but there's and a then down, and, and then down you go to hell. That is it. That is it. Roger, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Guys, listen to me when I tell you that Erotic Vagrancy is a fantastic book. It's a wild ride. Um, uh, they're an incredible couple to spend time with. It's released on the 26th of October in hardback, so treat yourself to a copy. Thank you so much for joining me, Roger. Oh, Charles, it's been a pleasure. Anytime you want to come back and talk about old movies, I'm here for it. <laughs> okay. We have a date. <laughs> Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop 
forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.